Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars discuss the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping especially for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation at Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Sarah is a first-time guest on the show, but a longtime friend of mine. We were in seminary and graduate school together many years ago. She's a pastor of a Lutheran congregation in Tokyo, Japan. So we were recording across the international dateline as we put this episode together. You may want to check out her podcast called Queen of the Sciences that she puts out with her father, who is a uh, major Lutheran theologian. And she also has a wonderful newsletter called Theology and a Recipe that you can sign up for on her website, sarahhenlickywilson.com. She's written other things, scholarly articles and all that kind of stuff, and is a real great thinker and preacher. Uh, but those would be the main things I'd want to let you know about uh, is the, the Queen of the Sciences podcast and the Theology and Recipe newsletter. So our, our text this week is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, which is the epistle lesson for the first Sunday of Lent. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on so that others may benefit as well. And you can click the link in the show notes if you'd like to support the show in various ways. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 from the English Standard Version. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I give you thanks uh, for this day which you have made. Grant us the grace to rejoice and be glad in it. God, I give you thanks also for this hour in which Sarah and I have been drawn and sent uh, with the gift and task of studying your word. We dare to ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit to illumine and guide us that we may be faithful bearers of the word of God. And Lord, we give you thanks for this moment in which you are present. 
Please grant us the grace to be aware of your presence in the moments to come. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so what are some initial observations? What jumps out at you when you glance at this text afresh today? Yeah, so, you know, often the short little lectionary epistle readings drive me nuts because they're so short and out of context. But this for being only, what, four or five verses is so rich. There is so much packed in here. It actually really deserves to just be set out by itself. And I didn't realize consciously before, but there are two major elements of the Apostles' Creed drawn specifically from here, which is the descent into hell and sitting at the right hand of the Father. I mean, that's yeah. amazing <laughs> for this very short extract from First Peter. That and you know, wow, that's a lot to make it into the creed. Yeah, and I mean the the descent in the hell business. Of course, there's maybe at most one or two other vague references. This being the most important one. Right. The right hand of the Father, of course, appears in you know quite a few places across the right. New Testament. But you have the exact. Uh, the exact phrasing of both right here. Yeah, no, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's fitting because it has a kind of poetic or hymnic quality to it, the passage. And so there's something creedal. You know, you, you even wonder if there's some kind of quasi creed hiding behind this text even before it was written it, down, you know, that's really being quoted. Yeah. Yeah. The the suffered ones for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. That he may I mean it, it almost has that kind of sing-song quality and it's piled up so densely. You feel like if he was trying to explain rather than recite, there would have been a little more a little more meat on the bones there rather than so tight and terse as all these phrases are. Yeah, it makes me think of the you know the the famous what do they call it the Philippian hymn or whatever in Philippians 2, where in actual fact, there's only like maybe one or two phrases from that that Paul's actually capitalizing on in his argument in the chapter, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, but but he puts the whole thing in. And here you get a similar dynamic where it may be that there might just be a a phrase or two here that's kind of important to the author of 1 Peter, right? That's just kind of trying to get it up and running. Is, 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 I'm trying to, I'm flipping to my ESV, which is what you had. I don't think it put it in a lined verse. No, it doesn't. No, it um, doesn't. It's just as a but, a but it did it does it it did earlier. It did the so it mostly does the quotes. Like the quote from Psalms earlier gets kind of put into lined verse. I have a bias towards putting things in lined verse if possible, <laughs> right? Whenever it seems like it might be, you know. Yeah. Um cuz yeah. 18 and 19 really have a feeling, right? The Christ the died, you know, suffered for the sins of all, you know, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then yeah, the, I was really you know. struck actually by that phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. It sounds really Pauline. I mean, I know this is yeah. a, a big New Testament theme, but it never had really jumped out at me before. So, so specifically, and the Petrine literature does refer to Paul. So Paul is already being assumed as kind of like a yeah. bedrock theological source to work from. No, that's a good point. Right. And that, I mean, that I, I was thinking of the phrase in 22, you know, who is at the right of God. I mean, that's just like word for word in some of the speeches in Acts, as well as in Paul's letters, like in Romans eight, it's almost word for word. So like you're, yeah. like you mentioned earlier, this is kind of almost stock creedal language, yeah. which makes it a fitting kind of Lenten 
text, you know, as a kind of. Yeah. And then the reference to angels, authorities, and powers. That's another thing that you find. Yeah. Yeah. The, is that well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no Ephesians, but it, it shows up in in First Corinthians as well. It's it's right, frequent. Right, yeah. Paul. Well, it's helpful. This just occurred to me. This is a new observation as I'm listening to you. That the opening verses, it, you know, if, if verse 18 and 19, and then verses you could say maybe second half of 21 through 22 are these more common things, these mm. both the creed and things that are in Paul. Then you get this really weird stuff sandwiched in the middle, like this kind of like <laughs> stuff about Noah and like, you know, spirits ha- in prison. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, it's this wonderful combination of like the familiar and the, uh, and the strange. Right. Yeah, I don't right. know. Yeah, maybe he's like sandwiching it inside of like, okay, everyone agrees with this stuff. And that will help me introduce you to this um, new point that I need to make here. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, what's wild is you you never know for sure what would be what would have been experienced as weird then. But I mean, I, I think it's a fair guess. Although obsessing about the, the spiritual deeper meaning of Noah, of course, has a prehistory to the Christians. You know what I mean? I mean, the rabbis would have been exploring this and, um, but still, uh, and it's funny. He calls out eight persons. Like why, why why is that important? I couldn't come up with a reason for that unless it's some kind of symbology, you know, because eight is the number of completion because it's the full week plus Mm. the next, next Sabbath or the next Sunday. I mean, like eighth day has a kind of thing, but I don't remember there ever being like an eight person, thing that was important. Yeah, like it would have been fine to just say in which only a few <laughs> right. like that his point has been made and he says yeah. that is eight. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like I what know. is ha, did your congregation just undergo a major split and there's only eight people left <laughs> and you're wanting to encourage them? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, could be. Could be. It is a bizarre although Although First Peter has a kind of, you know, when he does this move way at the beginning of the book, maybe I'm just traipsing too far. Of course, I don't come from a tradition that like uses the lectionary. So like I find it useful as a kind of corrective to our own tendencies. Like if I grew up in a church that used it, I would complain about it more the way you, that you do. Like I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Regularly but, and loudly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But because uh, I agree with the content of most of your your criticisms, I think they're mm. spot on. But uh, I always just, I just, like you, like you said, if you just treat it loosely, it's not, it's not as problematic, right? So this yeah, is like a jumping yeah. off point to look at First Peter. But he talks about like how he's writing to the, to the exiled tribes of Israel, you know, mm. to the, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, you know, mm. like, really? Like, is that exact? I mean, I think there's something already allegorical going on in the way that he's using. So then that maybe links to this Noah talk to kind of, I'm guessing there's some. Yeah. So if this if, is, if this literature is really late in the new Testament, then we would probably guess that it's after the expulsion of the Jesus believers from the synagogue, which seems to underlie yeah. the Johannine literature. So, mm-hmm. but if he's talking to like people in dispersion, it could mean, I don't know, like Alexandria, which is one of the proposed places for the Johannine community. So it mm. could be one of the reasons for this weird number, maybe maybe you're closer to right than you you realize when you were jokingly saying, did you just go through a split and there are only eight people left? You know, maybe this is actually addressing precisely like, well, we're the only ones left on the ark at this point, you know. 
Yeah. And if even not eight, just if you're a small group, it's actually really like, I mean, we were sharing before we, before we hit record, I mean, you're in Japan and Christianity has been present there a long time, but we were saying some things about like, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's like only 1% statistically of the population. At least. The Bible is a bestseller. People regard Christianity well, but people do not convert. They don't get baptized. They, they're they very suspicious of religion generally. And so, yeah, huge efforts at evangelism with very little visible, at least, return. Though I have heard a lot of people say that Christianity has seeped in far more than you would think, not just to the culture at large, but even to people's consciousness. But of course, you know, that's impossible to measure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, like, I mean, when you're in an environment as you are, I living here in the the northern version of the Bible Belt, the Rust Belt <laughs> uh, in Indiana, very different, right? But in, in an environment such as yours, it would be, on the one hand, you know, you want to read things in Acts that like encourage you that, wow, the spirit could move and like thousands of people could get converted. But there are probably a lot of days when this is actually the most encouraging thing to read and just say like, yep, <laughs> sometimes there's only eight. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And that's, and that's actually encouraging because the baptism, you, you mentioned that, that to be, to be converted and to undergo baptism is what years long they say process six to typically eight years is normal. Yeah. yeah. So it's well, taken you know, very seriously. And like to think like the baptism that they've undergone as adult converts, perhaps to say, you know, this baptism that you've undergone is a big deal. You have, and you are in the ark and yeah, there might only be this small group of you, but don't lose heart. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, weirdly, or maybe not for people here. One of the reasons it takes them so long to get baptized is because they recognize baptism is a big deal to a degree that people in Christendom don't, whether they're right. infant <laughs> baptizers or revivalists. Like they, I, there was somebody um, who was coming regularly for like, he still comes for like two and a half, the whole time I've been here. And so I was like, gosh, I'm a bad missionary. I never have asked him to like take the catechism class and think about getting baptized. And I mentioned it and he was like, no, 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 not, I'm not getting baptized. And I'm just like, why do you come to church Sunday after Sunday? And yet baptism is totally out of the question. But like, it really, I mean, it really is a translation from one kingdom to another here to a degree that even, I mean, I was, I have a pretty high doctrine of baptism. I'm, I'm kind of stunned by the, how big a deal it is still for people here. Even when most social punishment for baptism has vanished, it's still just wow. a huge thing. Yeah. So there may be some like you said, social punishment and, and more so centuries ago, of course. So there's some historical uh, inertia and cultural mm. inertia behind that resistance. But nevertheless, I think, like you're saying, there's just a recognition on the mission field in general, but but it sounds like distinctly even in Japan, like a, a recognition. It, it, for you as a Lutheran, basically, it sounds like you had to go to Japan to finally be outdone in your uh, baptismal theology, right? <laughs> But they like get what it means, right? It's like, this really is a transfer of loyalties, uh, which is spot on. You know, it's so strange because Japan has is, you know, has always been a culture that adopts from other cultures and refines and perfects, like historically with China and since the war with the United States. And in some sense, Japan has taken absolutely everything America had to offer except its religion. 
And <laughs> very curious because it, I, I, ha, I mean, I hate these huge cultural civilizational arguments because it's really hard to get a handle on them and you're always tempted sure. to bias one way or another. But like, does any of the rest of it work? Does it even work in America without the religious foundation? And I think a lot of people want to say, no, you don't need that. We can leave it behind. I don't think that's the case in America. And I'm really sure it's not the case in Japan. But it's curious, like, why, why was this the one thing that they wouldn't take? And I wonder if it's just because... Huh they had a sort of spiritual perceptiveness that this requires such a change. And mm. the, the discontinuity is so huge that, uh, yeah, baptism is a very slowly adopted thing. Yeah. And well, talk about discontinuity. I mean, eight people on a boat <laughs> and everyone else yeah. in deluge, and actually, right? You know, eight, eight is a lot. One of my members told me her favorite passage in the whole Bible is where two or three are gathered. <laughs> And I don't think that's my mistake. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know for, for two introverts, you and I, uh, eight's, eight's pretty is a crowd. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little claustrophobic, yeah. agoraphobic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is weird. What What is going on? Like, what is, like, if I try to just for a moment, just to talk baptism for a moment, like, if I were to just bracket out everything else I know, which you really can't do, and we can't, we'd want to, we wouldn't want to land there, but you, but it's a fun thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Like just verse 21, how is baptism being presented here as, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what yeah, is it yeah. doing? So, like, so the, clearly, all right. So, in the Greek, the word for saves and the word for baptism are right next to each other. The way you have uh -huh. to rephrase it to make the English grammar work puts a, space between baptism and saves but in the yeah. greek the order is is clear it's like and also to you the anti-type now saves yeah. baptism <laughs> but you see so say and baptisma right next to each other so he's obviously and i mean this has always been of course really important for high doctrine of baptism to say like it says right baptism here baptism saves Right. But it's said. Don't say baptisma. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's set in the context. And then, like, the Greek is anti type. So in English, we change it to this um, non non related verb form, which corresponds. Yeah. That's trash. <laughs> I didn't care for that. <laughs> well, unless you have Greek rhetorical training, maybe it's, it's more. True. Accessible. What's an anti type? Right. Right. Yeah. Type and anti type. So clearly. Well, what's corresponds either? I feel like that's just to wave a hand. Because yeah. nobody's going to know what that means either. Do you know what I mean? True. True. But so you see it's, but I mean, it's interesting here. You know, I'm sure you have this problem in your tradition too, of this kind of looking down on the Old Testament and the Judaic mm. inheritance and somehow saying, you know, it's all shadow. And then we have, you know, a supersessionist perfection in Christianity. So, but, you know, this is, this is not type and anti-type, like the anti-type is a negative thing, you know, or like. No, it's, it it's the same word anti is in, is the, is in John one grace upon grace. Yeah, exactly. Grace after grace. It's grace and Karin anti-Karin, right? Yeah. Grace, grace upon grace. It's piling on, right? Exactly. So what we're seeing here is not baptism does it better than poor old sucker Noah. Right. Who was an ancient Jew and didn't know better, but it's emphasizing instead the continuity of God's work through time. Right. So the same thing that happened of the few in Noah is happening again now in baptism. So that far I can get, but then the next part, like what is this contrast? Not as a removal or laying aside or putting off of dirt from the body. I mean, that must mean just literally because people would be immersed, 
so from flesh in the original very often <laughs> so you know you probably were objectively physically cleaner after your baptism right than before. but then this appeal to god for a good conscience and then through the resurrection of jesus christ so there's this <laughs> really tight connection between baptism and the resurrection of Christ, which is really Which again makes you think of Paul again, right? <laughs> well, except interestingly, yeah. like in Romans 6, it's the crucifixion, the, the burial. You're, you die with Christ in baptism. So is this like, is Peter surrounding, I'm just making this up as I go along here. He's surrounding this argument with Pauline allusions in order to shift a perspective of baptism from crucifixion to resurrection Ooh. or to include that more i don't know because he does open he opens the book with a resurrection reference very clearly right out of the gate yeah so maybe maybe at this point the emphasis needed to be more on resurrection but like in the noah analogy like he's not talking about any of the baptized people drowning (laughs) in the flood he's only talking about them being saved on the ark so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's why that was the right Old Testament analogy for him to push towards baptism as resurrection rather than baptism as burial or crucifixion with Christ. I don't think they have to be uh, an enemy of the Pauline argument, but maybe that's kind of the cluster of ideas he's working with. But the accent is different. I agree with you in that. I, I missed that. You're right. The accent is, is, is there's a distinction there. I still don't get the appeal to God for good conscience, though, unless that's somehow, if we're talking about a expelled from the synagogue sort of thing, this is trying mm. to reassure people who have really mixed feelings about what they've gone through. Have they done the right thing? But I don't, I, I don't know, good conscience, maybe I, I just bring too many enlightenment and onward you know, associations with that word. I don't know well enough what it meant in its context to make a good guess. Yeah, that's good. That that an appeal to God for a good conscience. Huh. I don't know. I think it's time to take a break. But we'll come okay. back and talk some more about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at First uh, Peter chapter three verses eighteen through twenty-two with Sarah Henlicky Wilson, first-time guest but a long-time friend of mine. So happy to have her on the show. And we've started. Uh, yeah, we've just been looking at this bizarre and beautiful passage, and really got talking about baptism a little bit and and what's being presented here. And I think you and I probably bumped on the same spot this reference to an appeal to God for a good conscience. I thought your suggestion was worth exploring a little bit. You said there, if they had any kind of relationship with the synagogue, that that could be a factor. Uh, Say more about that. That that was an interesting hypothesis that's at least worth exploring. Yeah. um, yeah, I just read J. Lewis Martin's um, book on, I think it's called The History and Theology of the Fourth Gospel. And he was one of the first people to really articulate the idea that the bedrock issue of the Gospel of John is the experience of expulsion from the synagogue Mm -hmm. after a certain, like after the destruction of the temple, when everything is just politically too hot to handle anymore. And You know, like what we hear in Paul, even though there's conflict with the Jews, you could still track together as Jews who believed in Jesus and Jews who didn't. And there was still welcome in synagogues. Sure, we'll hear what you have to say about this 
potential messiah. But that after a certain point, there just has to be a break. And so Martin tracks the suggestions from the internal evidence of John and the way it's structured and kind of like a two level reading of both what happened to Jesus and then what happens to yep. Jesus community through the spirits. And I find it, found it a really uh, very compelling argument, but that just made me start thinking like in the in other later New Testament literature, do we possibly see allusions to the same phenomenon happening? So my get, this is pure, just while we've been talking, <laughs> guess here, but if the reason why he has to specify so few people are saved on the ark and then mm. talk about having a good conscience before God after getting baptized, and I'm assuming, as in Japan now, if you got baptized, then it was really saying, I'm making a break from the non-Jesus believing synagogue forever, you know, and if you come from a tradition where, you know, you're a minority, there is a strong, you know, behavioral and ethical components, it would be very easy to see how you would could be deeply troubled in conscience. Did I do the right thing? Look at how yeah. we've been passed out. So maybe that's trying to link baptism to a clean conscience rather than to a bad one at having abandoned the traditions of your fathers, which of course is a commonly made accusation against Paul and others early on. Yeah. So the you're right to say to say this is a an appeal for a good conscience, and interestingly, before God, as if to somewhat imply you know, yeah, uh, it's like quorum Deo before God, you can cling to your baptism as being in good standing. Uh, even if quorum homo right before your human right. community, you have every reason to, Hey, and maybe have that maybe pricked conscience. Why, yeah, no, I think that's a good insight. Maybe that's why he emphasizes the resurrection over the crucifixion of Christ, because these are people who are, who don't need to be brought to awareness of their sin in order to repent, but who are already crushed by what's happened to them and need to be lifted up. So maybe that's a way of, yep. in the specific context, um, reorienting the, per, the analogy with baptism in order to lift up people who are already have the burden of guilt <laughs> upon them. That's nice. Cause you know, I mean, Paul's kind of centralizing of the cross, which in fact is not, I mean, the center of Paul's thought as a whole, when you see how it all fits together, is is very much the resurrection of Jesus. He has this rhetorical pressure towards the cross because he's dealing with, you know, super apostles and and the kind of prosperity gospel in Corinth right. and We're never gonna die. The, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can kind of tell that 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 the starting point of everything he has to say is the risen Christ is at the right hand of God, right? That that's just saturated on every page of Paul's right. letters. Well, I think even, for him, it's really even in Romans six where he says, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, for Paul, it's really the resurrection of the crucified. Exactly. And, there you, you go. Know, Perfect. Now, now that I think of it, if we look back to the beginning of this passage, it starts with being yep. put to death in the flesh. So it's not like by appealing to resurrection, Peter here is trying to dodge the crucifixion. You know, there's the same kind of movement forward. It starts with crucifixion. So he suffered. I mean, it starts, he suffered righteous for unrighteous, bringing us to God by death in the flesh and moving forward from there. No, I think that's spot on. Yeah, that's spot on. Because even like, you know, in Paul's famous line in Romans 6, where he says, do you not know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death? Well, the rhetoric of that argument works because 
it might not have occurred to them that the death was the point of the baptism, right? Like, <laughs> oh, I've just baptized into Christ, into his body, into his right. the risen Christ who is our Lord, right? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? That's also into his death. Oh, shoot. Okay. Right, and, right. And so like I if we imagine the, this Petrine community is in somehow a crucified community, like because a lot yes, of very First Peter is about suffering people. And maybe, you Absolutely. know, that's then it starts. Christ suffered once. I mean, the famous hopox is in there once. Very cool. So you know. So then, okay, he suffered once. It's done. <laughs> you know, it's it happened and is over. So yeah, that that would make a lot of sense to one community. You have to emphasize, like, you know, you're a little elated here in the resurrection hope and think you're never going to die. I know that's more of the Corinthians than the Romans. You know. Sure. So therefore, but we, we get, emphasize yeah. the cross to you, but to the community that's already crucified say, okay, but suffering actually ends for Christ. It happened once. And uh, even the spirits in prison, we should probably talk about that. (laughs) But before we do, I just want to say one more thing, at least one more thing about baptism, which is that um, one thing that's really struck me recently in New Testament study is how baptism is absolutely unquestioned by the time the New Testament literature is written, which is so early. So this Mm. practice is, has taken hold that there's not even a need to defend it. I mean, Peter's explaining it here, but he's not defending it or making an argument for it. It is just absolutely assumed. If anything, he's making it more mysterious rather than clearer, <laughs> right? I mean, and I don't mean that yeah, yeah. in a in a cruel way and just because of historical distance. I mean, he's in some ways he's plumbing the depths of the mystery of a practice that's assumed yeah, rather than making was- a making a clear and understandable case to a doubter about why do we get baptized? See, that's not what he's answering. He's right, assuming right. the practice and saying, maybe there's more going on here than you realized, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're already taking it for granted. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the fact that the practice predates Christ himself, I think, is not irrelevant to that. Right. And the right, fact right. that in Acts 19, there's evidence, uh, as well as Johannine Corpus hints that there might have been but explicitly in Acts 19, there are, there are people who have received John's baptism out in the diaspora, outside right, of Palestine. Right. Right, so right, baptism right. had been kind of spreading around as a kind of reformation of within Judaism right. that probably was being practiced by other non-Christian Jewish sects, right? So right. it's like so it, it has a prehistory. Yeah, Christians really have to clarify how their baptism is at least not John's so. baptism, even though there's such a clear line of content. I mean, it's so clear Christian baptism comes from John's baptism, but there's this crucial hinge point at which it becomes something other than. And like you said, Acts 19 is kind of the last point we see John's baptism still being practiced and then getting the upgrade <laughs> to the Christian baptism. Yeah, and I think here, and it, I, it's not irrelevant that in verse 21, you know, it's not not just a removal of dirt from the flesh. It isn't uh, Soma, it's Sarkos, flesh, which is not irrelevant since flesh is used earlier in verse 18, put to death in the flesh. But it's not just a washing away of the dirt of the flesh, which you could say, okay, it's not just that kind of literal bath, but this interior reality. And I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Although there could be a, a gentle nudge away from a kind of baptism of repentance, a Johannine style Right. The other, John the Baptist style. This isn't just a kind of cleansing of the flesh in any sense of that term, but an appeal to a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, right? It's right. this is the the power that includes you in God, which brings us back to verse 18, right? He he died once, he suffered once, 
uh, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that y'all might be brought, drawn into God, right? Drawn toward God, right? So there's this, this powerful sense of being sort of brought into fellowship with God that would then be parallel with the put put to death in the flesh, right? But made alive in spirit, right? So there's this kind of spiritual being drawn into good standing before God, right? It almost parallels the movement of 21, right? at least at first so, glance. You know, like the the baptism then, if he says it saves, you know, like it drills down to this one historical moment in your life, the whole entire creation, redemption, restoration, eschaton process. So it's like the, <laughs> the, the intersection of now with eternity. Like you get this whole swoop from, from suffering once and being put to death in the flesh and then drawn up into the resurrection. But the baptism saves because that's like where you literally intersect this whole arc of God's design. Yeah, it's, it's hopping into the arc, right? Yeah. So there was <laughs> stuff before, right? The, there was... There was the building of the ark. There was the family, the, the marriage of these, of these sons. You know, there's a lot that goes before that. The co- mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the commands that came from God to Noah. And then there's the hanging out on the ark and the long wait. And then the long wait after the rain stops, but it's still months for it. And then there's coming out and there's the rainbow. Like, but there is the moment when you get in and God closes the door, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that's, there's this key, like, and, and I think, capturing the sense that, yeah, there's this whole cosmic story and there's your whole personal life story. And yet there is a kind of dividing line. Right. Uh, Right. Baptism signifies. If you're on the ark, you're saved, but the rain is still falling and you have not seen the tip of Mount Ararat and the bird is still coming back. (laughs) You know, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Cause there's so much reference to suffering and persecution throughout the book of first Peter that I think that's, that's meant to be an encouraging word. Yeah. 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 And being on oh, an ark man. only with your in-laws and um, all those animals <laughs> suffering. <laughs> hey, it sounds like pandemic. <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh, but it does. It does uh, sound like We don't have that many animals. <laughs> oh, my. But the sense of being shut up and waiting, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is wow. really, that's a good connection. Striking. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up this second segment, we should talk a little bit about preaching to the spirits in prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that verb I read in ESV, it's proclaimed, it's ekeruksen, and it's related to kerygma. It is actually the preaching word of Greek. Mm-hmm. So he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So I was when I was looking at this, I was... Um, struck in the previous verse being he says he being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit and those are both passive verbs i was really struck by the importance mm. of two passives for christ's activity but the flesh spirit contrast and so at first i was a little bit like hmm you know cuz that sounds a, a little too conveniently gnostic or neoplatonic uh, i guess it's too early for neoplatonic right. but still um but then when I saw immediately the next verse is he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It doesn't seem to be drawing so much on that Gnostic reference, but as like, literally like what, what are people like when they're dead? <laughs> you know, that their, yeah. their sarks has become inanimate. So I think that's more the, the meaning of the alive in the spirit for Christ. It's not, it's definitely not an anti-resurrection of the body statement, but. And actually some- the, yeah, the, the made alive in the spirit may not even 
have to refer exclusively to the event of resurrection that follows, it could in fact be because at verse 19, it's, it's in which, right. Which seems to be referring back to the spirit of mm. at the end of verse 18, right. So it's was oh. made alive in spirit in which also to mm. those shut up spirits, mm-hmm. he preached, uh, I think it's which the he because- went, right. Yeah. Having gone, right. It's like a, right. Uh, participle, having gone to preach to them. And really the poetry falls off then. So he even Mm. knows if he's quoting something here, he might be interrupting it now Mm. to Mm -hmm. comment on that because it's weird. So it's there's reason to believe that he was aware of its weirdness. This isn't just historical distance. This is, I always like to say like whenever we think now this now people in that time they knew that this would mean that i'm always like actually people then might have also found this difficult in fact (laughs) in fact first or second peter makes a reference to paul's letters being hard to understand right yeah so like so like there are people in the new testament saying that other parts of the new testament are hard to read yeah (laughs) so it's not just that we're far away right um so i do wonder if there's a little bit of a introducing some commentary to these spirits and interestingly having later talking about a few only eight, but he seems to be implying that, you know, Christ in his death and resurrection is bringing some kind of good news to the dead spirits from the time of Noah, because maybe because they predate the covenant. And so they kind of, they're part of the period of patience. They're the, they were in like the pagan waiting room. They weren't in like, <laughs> right, right. they weren't, you know, and like, like they, in get the a, they get another chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Cause he seems to be declaring some kind of, yeah, comedy, like a, like a, a commuting of their sentence to say, you know. Yeah. That's the right word. Cause it's prison. I mean, it's interesting. We just automatically assume it means death. It, I mean, it must mean death, but it's interesting. He says spirits in prison. And yeah. because there's such a huge theme in the New Testament of of Christ coming to set the prisoners free, it does seem like this is the kind of hell that God doesn't want you to be in, rather than the the hell that God justly sends you to. And so, yeah, and well, that's and perfect because Christ. the little bit of the little bit of time I've spent reading in intertestamental Jewish literature would confirm. I mean, they all, they have these elaborate schemes sometimes of four or six different afterlife. You know, like, right, there's the right, where's the righteous Jews go, there's where unrighteous Jews go, there's where righteous pagans are, there's where unrighteous pagans are, right? And there's those that are from before, you know, there's people from the time of Noah, from the time of Moses, like, there's this very elaborate sense of after it's very, and that's why there's all these different terms that get translated too quickly as just hell, in the right. New Testament, but there's all these different weird words of Gehenna and Abaddon, and they're not right. all automatically equivalent. They and not all the authors use them. And I think with that background in mind, just again, I don't know that stuff really well. We need to get the pros on to talk about that. But you know, you and I, our professionalism is elsewhere. Uh, but the little <laughs> I know of that period, like this, would probably be somewhat familiar, at least to some of his hearers, as kind of this notion of. Oh, well, yeah, the, the water came down and like all the people who died there are probably in some kind of special place of like, hmm. you know, this really off, this particularly awful trauma in the history of the universe 
right. the people who died in the flood. And right, surely right. there were other righteous people in there, right? Because that's right. probably, you know, you could totally imagine a rabbi asking, oh, surely yeah. there were other righteous in there, yes? Well, of yeah. course there were. And God <laughs> has set them aside. And when the Messiah comes, he'll go and get, he'll go and fetch them, right? right. I and mean, you could totally, that wouldn't yeah. be implausible okay, as a kind of. Go ahead, go ahead, run with it. You, yeah. you are expelled from the covenant in the synagogue. What about all your ancestors? Oh, yes. Is there hope for them or not? Uh, I have my, uh, my good friend Langston is um, publishing with me her memoir about exiting Mormonism and becoming an Orthodox Christian. Mm. And so I I may have, um, you know, what happens to your ancestors on the brain a bit, but surely this is always a missional issue is, does that mean- In the East, it's a big question, I know. Yeah, actually, so (laughs) when the Jesuits first came to Japan 500 years ago, they taught, number one, God is love. Number two, every Japanese person who has ever lived is in hell, but you can get out of it if you want. And if you have a culture where there's strong solidarity with ancestors, this is not a good sell. I mean, it's not a good sell anyway, but to just say automatically everyone before the advent of the gospel is in prison, is in hell, is in endless torment. What an awful thing to do to people. And I'm sure the the one-off reference to baptism on behalf of the dead in 1 Corinthians is an early, a very early abandoned effort to figure out how to think about ancestors who do not have the option of knowing Christ just by chronological bad luck. So maybe what's going on here is making this connection that don't worry about your ancestors or members of the old covenant or the Noahide or Abrahamic covenant or circumcision covenant or whatever, because Christ can even go to where they are and spring them out. So you don't have to either choose between Christ and your ancestors. You were, yeah, you worry about being faithful to your baptism, even if there's only eight of you. That's the right. beauty is this passage is both a kind of like small little group, like a little kind of rapture, like team that's going to like make <laughs> it, make, yeah, yeah. but, but also has this more, if not universalistic, at least a broader scope right, to salvation right, right. in the same dang passage. And usually we don't think of those ideas as being correlated, but actually they are like, you can have a small band when you still hold out hope that God might be doing way more than we can see. Yeah. Well, and if the whole old Testament message is the chosen nation for the salvation of the worlds, and this Mm. is, this could just be a, a Christian adaptation of that idea. Oh, I think that's spot on. That's really good. Let's take a break and explore some sermon starters. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Sarah Henlicky Wilson, and we are looking at First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Let's explore some sermon starters. Where might you go with a text like this? This could be for any time of the year, although this is set aside as the epistle reading for the first Sunday of Lent. So we can be specific to Lent, or we can ignore that because these are evergreen episodes, hopefully as well. So your choice. Where might you run with this uh, if you were preaching it? Yeah, well, in our conversation, we brought up several times Japan, which is my particular preaching context. And so there, I think a lot of the things that we've talked through there, like, for instance, connecting to the spirits in prison and what happens to your ancestors. Um, In fact, on All Saints, I preached directly about that because I suddenly realized that most of my members, their parents, siblings, lots of people they love are not baptized Christians and their whole almost preceding family line. So that might be, especially if you're in a 
a place where there's a lot of transition into Christianity from another religious, probably more from a spe- another religious tradition than from, you know, atheism or secularity where they're not going to be so concerned about this. But with the baptism part, I mean, one thing that's really interestingly changed for me being here is everywhere I preached before, I just assumed and I think safely could assume everyone in the congregation was a baptized Christian, you know, at greater or lesser levels of commitment. But that that line at least had already been crossed. They were on the ark, even if they were not fully aware of the facts. But now I have to always assume when I preach that there could be, probably will be at least one unbaptized person who is thinking about it, or at least knows it's a possibility. And so as a, you know, as a Lutheran, we're always trying to preach to and exhort people to remember the fact that they are baptized to draw strength from that. Luther's famous cry in the large catechism, when your conscience afflicts you, respond, but I am baptized and therefore I will be saved in body and soul. And so that's great for people who are baptized and to the baptized members of my congregation, I would, you know, hit that point heavily, baptism saves. But at the same time, I would use it as an opportunity to exhort those who are not baptized or in some some phase along that way, whether it's the first inkling of interest to coming more to the crisis points, say that this is the unbelievable gift of grace that is offered to you, that you become part of this Um, resurrection of Jesus Christ and a clean conscience and being set free from the endless bondage to suffering or prison, you know, whatever those might metaphorically be for people. I think that's, that's probably Mm. where I would, I would go. Yeah. That's really powerful. That's really good. I mean, how often John, are you in a setting where you have any reason to think there are unbaptized people in your, your congregation? I don't know how often you preach, actually, but yeah, sure. Well, not as often as I used to. I, I, <laughs> I mean, part of why I study started this podcast is I love preparing. I don't like preaching, um, so like this was this pod was my chance to like, and I love like prepping with other people. You know, like talking. You know, I have a lot of friends who I'm kind of their their Saturday night call when they're stuck. You know, working on their sermon. You know, to like help them get unstuck and talk a little theology and a little rhetoric and whatever. So I love the prep and I don't preach every week anymore. I used to, but I do, you know, I I hang out with, with teenagers a lot. And so the baptism question actually comes up a lot in that setting, even though again, it's different than in, because it is in a sort of late Christendom form of kind of Northern Bible belt. Right. But because of the nature of our, tradition though we we recognize and practice infant baptism it's not the norm it's not mm. the default setting so it's usually a, a a decision that's made in the early often in the early teen years so it's and someone so, deciding to be baptized who's been surrounded by church their whole life it's yes, not exiting it's very different religion. right yeah that is really different correct yeah. but but then they it's very common for the you know teens to bring a friend to youth group or what have you, who is either, you know, secular or kind of nominally Roman Catholic or Methodist might've been baptized as a child, right. Or, and don't even right. know it kind of thing. Right. right, right no right. one told them <laughs> about it. <laughs> right. um, cause, cause the, the rust belt's weird. It's kind of very on the surface, very kind of like traditional conservative religious on the surface, but in actual fact is very under churched in a way that you wouldn't expect. 
Yeah, um, no, I wouldn't. Just even statistically, like these small towns in in the Midwest often have just huge swaths of folks that if you that's why the statistics don't work because if you asked them if they are a Christian, they would say yes. Or mm-hmm. and if you ask them what what if are you born again or an evangelical, they might say yes, because that's just in the water. Right. It's the religion they know from TV and from local right, right. radio. Right. Because to say uh, no would be to like in, say, actually, I'm a serial murderer, you know? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, it's just not even. But in point of fact, lots of people are pretty alienated from church life in the Midwest, which is kind of important to understand, even the way that politics works here. So, anyway, why did I go off on that? Oh, so then you do get these, a lot of these kind of. Uh, I mean, adults too, but again, I often work with teens. And so, so the baptism question kind of comes up and, and a passage like this is actually, it's both spooky, but also really exciting because (laughs) a lot of, a lot of teaching on baptism in my circles, unlike the Lutheran tradition that of course I draw on greatly, as you know, that's why uh, we always got along, but uh, it's much more common to kind of like go out of your way to say what baptism isn't. Well, okay, now baptism doesn't save you. It's just a sign of something that already happened or that's happening at the same time, right? right. And what's fun about this passage is it does not talk that way. It talks no. in this very straight, straightforward, this is this is the thing. Although importantly, not in a way to demote baptism, but the the phrase the language here of not washing away the dirt, but an appeal for a good conscience uh, before God through the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. It's really powerful to say the appeal to the good conscience is not, I did the good work of, of submitting myself for baptism. Mm, I'm appealing to, right. I have a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's what, that's who I know is my advocate, right? I know that's right, kind of right. language from John, but that's what that's just like you. I read the whole <laughs> since you were reading Martin. And so yeah, I yeah. think that the notion of, you know, um, like I would get really excited to preach even in Lent to preach a sermon that helps us to see baptism looking backwards. I mean, I, I like playing with time in my sermons often, right? So baptism kind of looking backwards and you could look backwards to, your own life that you're leaving behind. You could talk about ancestors, like we talked about, you know, these spirits, the Noah stuff, and also looking back on the the suffering of Jesus mm. in the past. And then, but baptism's also looking forward so to I our standing this- before God, to the risen, the resurrection of Christ, and therefore to our own resurrection. And there could be something to play with there. I don't know how much of a sermon idea is there yet, but there's the beginning of something at least. Yeah. You know, I, on one of the previous episodes you did that I listened to, you talked about the challenge of epistle preaching because you can just yeah. be like verse by verse expository and very, you know, like theoretical. But I think this passage really puts forward a way to do a narrative preaching of an epistle. Yes. Actually, I think all epistles have a kind of narrative structure to them. And often, like I said at the beginning, I don't yes. like them being so short because you can't get that bigger picture. But there is so much action in this passage 
passage. So Christ suffers righteous for unrighteous. He brings us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but is made alive in the spirit. Then he goes down to the spirits in prison. And then we jump way backward to Noah and the ark and that whole drama there. And now we're finding out baptism is the same thing, which is through the resurrection of Christ headed up towards heaven and the right hand of the father and the subjugation of all the things that subjugate us. I mean, there's so much narrative Gosh. drama <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Yeah. And there's almost, you wonder, how do you go about it? Do you, do you kind of reorder it and kind of work through it chronologically? Or do you kind of go back and forth the way he does? Or do you kind of introduce your own kind of tension based on our own kind of circumstance, which I think I'm somewhat inclined towards because epistles tend to be speaking to a contextual question. And then the sort of the theological meat comes in addressing that question. Right. right. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's too cheesy, but man, the, 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 the being cooped up in the being cooped up and doing the math on a, (laughs) <laughs> like I, I would, I would be inclined because I mean, this is, this is a trick I learned from Mandy is like when she preaches an epistle, like the step one is find that narrative dynamic in the mm-hmm. text. But then step two for her is like, okay, go find some story in the old Testament that right. like, you can just tell that kind of is instead of, you know, inventing your own illustration, there's something in scripture already that kind of, and this one gives it to you, right? So like, I would be very much inclined to, to suggest to our listeners, you know, spending an afternoon in the Noah story from Genesis six to wherever it is, 10 ish, mm-hmm. uh, or six to eight, nine wouldn't be so bad because like, especially because I think they're in the ark for almost a year. It's like really long. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like hundreds of days that are, it's I can't only 40 days of rain, but it takes a long right. time for the rain to recede. Yeah. And I don't know, that just feels like, I mean, I hate to be too cute to make connections to issues of our own time, but, but there's a way to do this. That's not cute, but actually respectful and engaging is to say, yeah. you know, we're, we feel the things have changed. We have some hope on the horizon, but it is kind of dragging out really long. Yeah. And, yeah. and to make that connection back. So there's pandemic now and social distance and all that. There's the Noah experience. And then there's the experience of Peter's uh, congregation here who are themselves undergoing some kind of suffering and kind of right. speculate a little what that would be. I think a nice little, balancing out of kind of, you know, those different sort of problems and then the hope that's given um, and then to, to hold on and to press on. And I mean, there's a direct link back to chapter one, because this phrase through the resurrection of Jesus Messiah, I mean, that exact phrase appears back in chapter one, mm. verse three. And mm. it's hard for me to not want to go there at some point where it says, blessed be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Messiah who according to the riches of his mercy has rebirthed us or regenerated us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Messiah from the dead. Right. So it's that same phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually the language of regeneration obviously links to baptism really well. (laughs) That made my Lutheran friend across the (laughs) Pacific ocean smile really big when I said that. (laughs) Regeneration shows up all over the Book of Concord. Lutherans hate to admit this, but it's everywhere. <laughs> yes. 
Baptismal regeneration, though. There it is. <laughs> and post-baptismal. Yeah. Doesn't just, not only then. That's so. right. Doesn't just That's end it. there. I think another but this living hope, though, that language of living hope back from chapter one, verse three, I think right. is really powerful. I think we could all use a little living hope um, <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one thing you'd also really have to key to your particular congregational setting is how to talk about the suffering aspects, because hmm. there's certainly like a vogue to claim suffering for yourself. Like it's, it's a yes. status signaler for us now. And so on one level, it's true because to be human is to suffer. Like there's nobody who doesn't, no matter where they are on the economic or racial or whatever scales you want to measure by. So, I mean, there's always a way to talk to people and probably any more people who come to church are more likely to be in a suffering category than not. Cause there's so mm. little status left to church itself anymore. I mean, I've just put out the caution that you don't want to like pump people up with, you know, I'm suffering. That makes me better or something like that. However, right. I think you can talk to like the general experience of suffering. And, you know, I don't think it's too cute to use the shut up in the ark, shut up in prison. Everyone has felt very shut up in the past year. It's yep. awful. It has had huge mental health emotional health consequences for people, that's a real thing. And so this idea mm -hmm. of being sprung from prison and lifted up from your crucified state into Jesus' resurrection, you know, while still maintaining that tension of, you know, the rain has stopped falling, but you cannot see dry land yet. You know, that I think that could really speak Gosh, to where doesn't that at. feel spot right? That feels really spot does. on. It really Rain does. stopped, but we haven't seen the dry land yet. And, yeah. and, it, and then for that hope, that, that wide scope of God's mercy and work while at the same time, recognizing that we might be part of just little pockets that seem to be the only ones being saved, but to hold out that hope for the stuff that <laughs> Christ in the spirit is able to do. Yeah. Those, well, I don't know. I think there's, there's, there's something, there's something to, to work with there. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and acknowledging the suffering and one way to play it off is, I mean, the ref, the only term suffering appears only with reference to Christ here in verse 18. Mm. So to kind of indicate there's the once for all suffering of Christ that is incomparable. Right. Right. right, right, right. And, mm. and then in light of that, then there's the, there's this great horrible suffering that is to be a spirit locked up after death. Mm. Um, and then there's all the various kinds of suffering that we all undergo. Right. And, some of us and the there's a grand difference between the minor inconveniences that I've had to face versus you know great oppression and depression that others have um yeah. and to sort of say yeah there's a scale and there's a difference and yet we're in this together and to kind of play those to play both of those I think is is just good is wise I think that's 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 good rhetorical ethos, uh, Sarah. You must be you must be preaching every week. <laughs> I am. It's a funny, funny discipline to be back at after like ten years away from regular preaching. Yeah, you do just get attuned. You get attuned to what what works and doesn't, and you can't always know. Like, there's things that I know when I was uh, preaching twice a week for three years straight for a season in, in South Jersey. And it's funny when I think back to that time, there were things that I learned there and I still know, I still, even to this day, don't know what was 
peculiar to that context and what was just good, good preaching practice, you know? And it's like, I don't need to know, no, <laughs> you know, like, cause it, <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like, cause you know, the, the thing that makes a good preaching practice is I was focused, I was attuned to that community yeah, and what they yeah. needed to hear and not need to hear and when they needed to hear it. And I yeah. also think, you know, this is so much fun to dive into a specific text for one sermon, but I think we probably need to think more of preaching over the long term. Because if I try to like yeah. come up with the specific sermons, I can consciously call to mind. Like I remember phrases or the occasion or something. Actually, Mandy's is one of the very few. It, she preached one in Miller Chapel as like one of the like 12 in my life that I can hmm. recall as such. And yet, clearly, my whole life and faith has been shaped by preaching I've heard almost every Sunday, plus a lot of Wednesdays and other occasions of my life. But I can't, I, like, I can't pull them out. So I think, you know, as preachers, we, I don't know what the language is, but probably other people have reflected on this, but what does it mean to preach over a year or five years or 10 years? Right. What does it mean to hear sermons over that period of time so that no single sermon is the one that makes the critical difference and yet cumulatively they make all the difference? Yeah. Like an irrigation hose, right? Drip, drip, drip. <laughs> it just, it makes it, it makes a difference over time. We hope. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I don't know. I look forward to maybe you'll uh, go epistles this Lent and I'll hear your sermon on this text. Actually, um, I already or at least the side reference. Do all of Jonah that we had a, in, in our oh, lecture cool. here, we had um, one, like a section out of Jonah three with nothing before or after. And I'm, I'm a sufficiently but, liberated from the lectionary when things like that bug me. I just decided we're going to do four Sundays in a row. In good for you. Jonah, so. I mean, I was but, at a church that didn't even know what the lectionary was, and I never used the word. Um, right. <laughs> they didn't even know that I used it as my jumping off point, but I often would do that. I would create a series based on like, oh, okay, there's a little bit here. Okay, then I'll stretch it out and do it for a season that made sense to our local rhythms. So I'm like yeah, a huge fan of that. Like a whole bunch of weeks in a row on Romans over the summer because we had maybe 10 weeks of Romans. I think it started in Romans five or six, not the earlier chapters, but I decided even, and then it just kind of quit at 14. And I was like, well, we're just going to go on to 16. And so I yeah, made exactly. it stretch out yeah. until the end of the church year. And that was great. And it just, it really also made preaching itself a clearer task. Like, okay, for the next, whatever, 15 weeks, I'm just preaching on Romans. And that was awesome. And it's great for personal study too, when you go into a book study and yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for taking the time to hang out and, and yeah, this dig was in and study and together. I would not have discovered anything that I said if I hadn't been talking to you about it. So this was really great. Hey, well, same back at you. So as always, big thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And uh, thanks most of all to you, dear listener. Thanks for listening to the show, getting the word out about it and supporting the show in various and sundry ways. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.